0: Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky, and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. Two weeks ago, we brought you the story of Johann Peter Uttinger, the 17th century German-speaking barber surgeon who in 1693 journeyed to Africa and the West Indies on behalf of the Brandenburg African Company. His journal from that period captures the height of German participation in the transatlantic slave trade. Today, we bring you the story of the journal itself, and how two historians, Craig Kloslowski and Roberto Zau, found the manuscript independently of one another at the Berlin Archives. The journal's history is as important as its contents. How we interpret the history within it means we need to know something about its origin. And for more than a century, what historians thought was Uchinger's authentic journal wasn't the real journal at all. On today's show, Kozlovsky and Zaug weave together a tale made of paper scraps, lost manuscripts, family revisions, and plain dumb luck to reveal the journal's true origin and how what could have resulted in the academic equivalent of fisticuffs turned into a wonderful collaboration. Kozlovsky and Zaug are the co-editors and translators of A German Barber Surgeon in the Atlantic Slave Trade, The 17th Century Journal of Johann Peter Utinger, published by the University of Virginia Press in 2021. Now, before we get started, just a reminder that if you go to georgewashingtonpodcast.com, you'll find part one of my chat with Kozlowski and Saug and a discount code from UVA Press that will get you 40% off the cover price of their book. All right, folks, with that, let's head to the archives and stumble upon the journal of Johann Peter Utinger with Craig Kozlowski and Roberto Saug. Well, before we turn to the journal itself as an artifact, how many enslaved people were taken on that 1693 voyage? And do we know anything about what happened to them, or at least those who survived the Middle Passage? The main cargo of enslaved people is taken on through uh, Queda, and in
1: all, 738 men, women, boys, and girls were on board the ship. So that would be the small number of African captives they bought in their earlier stops— particularly a few, at least, in the Gold Coast at the Brandenburg African Fort there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the mass quantity of hundreds brought on board in, uh, when the ship is, is anchored off the coast of uh, the Kingdom of Hueda. And then there are losses along the way at about an average percentage, I think, for the Middle Passage at that time.
2: So he says uh, six, 659 Uh, Africans reach St. Thomas? And it says, on the journey, 56 persons, old and young, died.
1: I think from consulting the Transatlantic Slave Trade Database, I think we can see that this was the single largest shipment of enslaved Africans by the Brandenburg African Company to St. Thomas. So without knowing it, Oettinger has really hit kind of the high point, if you will, of the Brandenburg African slave trade. It continues on, but for various reasons, this seems to have been the largest quantity of enslaved persons ever shipped over there. And one of the things we discovered is that St. Thomas is an entrepôt for the reshipment of slaves. Uh, We have a Uh, an English uh, expert on the Transatlantic slave trade who says, St. Thomas, give me a break. They don't produce more than like a half a shipload of sugar there every year, but they import thousands of slaves. They're all being re-exported, some to our English colonies like uh, St. Kitts, St. Christopher, Antigua, uh, but many others to French uh, slave colony islands. And then undoubtedly some further on down the line to the Spanish by way of the Dutch. So these people from Africa were Undoubtedly dispersed all across the Caribbean, at the very least, and possibly further. And I know there's an exciting intra-American slave trade database project under, under development now mm-hmm. that will try to pick up where the slave trade database leaves off and try to track the movement of enslaved people from their first landfall, in our cases is St. Thomas, Danish Virgin Islands,
0: all the way further around the Atlantic world and the Americas. Guttinger has managed to capture the high point of the Brandenburg company's activities, unbeknownst to him. Reading your introduction, that's a very interesting story. And I I have a couple of questions about, you know, potential rivalry between the two as you both came across (laughs) it in the archives. But but tell us, you know, when did you come across this thing? Well, it's a different story depending on which of us you start with. (laughs) Who got got there first? Uh, Roberto got there first.
1: So I will let him start with the story from his perspective. Well, well, let's <laughs> let's start
2: with the story of the manuscript. Which, okay, uh, okay, yeah, that's 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 kind um, of a so, neutral terrain. There is before the text reached the the the, the, the version of the of the e- edition, the English uh, language edition, it, it went through different stages. And the first stage, of course, uh, we we are sure that that Johann Peter Oetting, during his voyage took actual notes in some form of of journal notes, um, which he then took back home uh, to to his hometown when he settled down in 1696. Now, shortly after settling down, becoming a master surgeon, marrying and starting a family, he has transformed these notes into an autograph fair copy to which he has also added some, some additional material and uh, and this became the um, his his travelog on on his journeyman years and this this travelog was then handed down from generation to uh, generation inside the family and in 1779 so many years Many decades after Johann Peter Oettinger's death, his grandson, who was a pastry baker, left the home region of the Oettingers and and resettled farther east in Leipzig, where he became a pastry baker and a a small uh, shopkeeper. And in the very moment when he left his home region, um, he took the manuscript the, the the manuscript of his grandfather's travelogue, which was then um in the house of his father, so the son of Johann Peter Oettinger, and he made a copy of it mm. and took this copy, this 1779 copy to Leipzig. And actually the notes, the, the, the journal notes and the fair copy, the autograph fair copy by Johann Peter Gettinger, they are lost. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what we have now is the 1779. Copy made by his uh, grandson. And this, this manuscript copy by the grandson was then handed down again from generation to generation as a kind of a family heirloom. Not until the late 19th century that, uh, that the very existence of, of this uh, journal became known to, to a, a wider audience. What changes uh, at the, at, at in the 8080s? In the 8080s, Germany is now a united nation state. And Germany um, jumps into the scramble for Africa. In 1884, 1885, it it acquires the first colonial possessions south of the Sahara. And as we know, uh, at the end of 1884, the beginning of 1885, Berlin hosts the, um, the notorious Congo conference where the colonial powers... Uh, decided on the basis of what principle they would subdivide Africa amongst them. So, like in these years, in the 80s, Africa gets on the agenda of um, imperial German politics and the grand-grandson of Johann Peter Oettinger, who was uh, a Prussian uh, officer and a military journalist, says to himself, "Oh, well, my ancestor, he was in Africa as well, and he was in Africa with the Brandenburg African Company founded by the Hohenzollern dynasty, which is the same dynasty uh, which which rules Germany in the in the late uh, 19th century. So he decides to publish the story of of his ancestors in order to link the name of his family to this this chapter of of glorified german history because mm-hmm. in when when germany became uh, an imperial power in africa in the late 19th century they started to celebrate this old brandenburg african company and to idealize it as the first as the cradle of german colonialism if you want so and so he, he publishes the story of his ancestors but but he does not Make an addition. He actually just takes the plot of of the <laughs> story of this uh, barber surgeon traveling mm. around the Atlantic, and yeah. then crafts a kind of a colonialistic um,
1: a novel, novel, basically, a yeah. novel. Yeah. Yes, yeah, a fake novel. story. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's handed down in the Oettinger family. Johann Peter Oettinger, He lives until uh, seventeen forty six. So he's got a tough constitution. I mean, he survived these these four crossings of the Atlantic and exposure to tropical diseases that are obviously killing people all around him because he records their deaths in Mm -hmm. his journal. He makes it until 1746. In 1779, his grandson creates a copy of this. That's good for us because the original fair copy manuscript is lost. That's in the family archive, if you will, of this non-noble but middling German family. By the 1880s, they are now uh, pretty entrenched as a, as a Prussian military uh, family with long uh, going career connections to the Prussian military. And then this Brandenburg African company or Brandenburg African American company goes from being something that was sort of a forgotten embarrassment and a, and a pointless exercise by the great elector that did not really take root. It is now transformed and rewritten to become the first stage in Germany's glorious colonization of Africa. And it's really their way to say, just like France, just like Britain, just like Portugal, Spain in there, just like the Dutch, we were also on the cutting edge of Colonialism, which is a good thing in this bizarre narrative, Mm in the 17th, in the early modern period. And they talk about the trading fort that they build, that the Brandenburg African Company built in what is today Western Ghana, as sort of the first German colony in Africa. None of these trading forts are colonies. They don't have any permanent population. They don't have any legal authority over the land that they're on. They're built on land based on treaties and agreements with African sovereigns who control the territory. But in the twisting of history of the 1880s, the Brandenburg African Company becomes the first colonial force uh, in Africa from Germany. And Oettinger is the person who visited this colonial fort and was part of this glorious colonial mission. Now, this creates huge problems for the ancestor who's writing this down, because after all, this is a slaving voyage, there's no other way to describe that. Uh, But by the 1880s, of course, slavery and the slave trade are associated with the moral failings of Africans who continue to persist in this long after the superior Europeans have abolished the very slave trade that they built up so enormously and grotesquely. So Oettinger's ancestor simply leaves out, the, um, the European side of the travel, the Dutch side of the travel, everything about the, the graphic details of the slave trade, and he inserts completely fake passages where Oettinger says, it made me feel so bad to see these enslaved Africans who have the same shape of humanity as we do. This rewriting of the journal included all these racist, 19th century racist tropes about Africans, and whitewashed the European story that Oettinger's journal did tell. So that's another reason why we figured out we have to bring the proper edition of this journal to light in in English and eventually also in German, because otherwise people are citing it as if it were the true journal, and they're recycling its 19th century racism as if it was a 17th century fact. And they're also whitewashing uh, perpetrators like Oettinger based on this fake version of it. Scholars of West Africa knew someone named Oettinger had written a journal, and they knew that the German version of it that was published in 1885, 1886 was definitely in some way tampered with. That author, for example, has uh, people in West Africa growing and eating breadfruit in the 17th century. Red fruit is a Polynesian plant that doesn't make it into the Atlantic world for another hundred years after that. So they're like, what is this? Couldn't possibly really be (laughs) what the journal is saying. But after 1885, no one knew where the, where the original manuscript from Oettinger's grandson was. So nobody could prove that the rewritten version was in fact a a transformation or, or a, a perversion of it. You might say that brings us up to 1982. The last surviving member of the Oettinger family just gives all of the family's papers and manuscripts. And this Oettinger family produced other diaries and journals, uh, accounts of the Napoleonic War, uh, accounts of mid-19th century Germany, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, all this went into the Staatsarchiv, the Prussian State Archive, in West Berlin in 1982. And there it sat. Without anybody knowing about it until Roberto came along, take well, it away, Roberto. It? Okay. What <laughs> happened next? Well,
2: okay, <laughs> well, what happened? Yeah, I was looking for 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 the Br- I was interested in the Brandenburg African Company uh, at that time. I was looking for a, a new research uh, postdoc project. So I traveled to Berlin. Uh, at that time, we could still travel freely. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I visited the, the archives in this uh, Berlin suburb of Dahlem. And uh, I had just ordered some some manuscript of, of the Brandenburg African Company. And then I had to wait for them. So I, I started just roaming through the um, the inventories manuscript inventories uh of, uh of of the various archival series and you must imagine that reading room of the thechyima Staatsarchiv, it's about 30 meters just shelves of, yeah. of inventories and they just yeah. like walked this this along <laughs> this shelf and I saw private uh, family archives they said, well let's have a look at it and <laughs> I, I took that inventory out of the shelf and I, I I started going through the names just because I was like I, I had nothing else to do and and then I this this name Oettinger, Uh I saw this name Oettinger, which I knew because I had seen I had had seen the the translation by Adam Jones of the 8085 version of the Oettinger narrative I said, okay, this must be, perhaps it's the Oettinger from, who was with the Brandenburg African Company. So Mm -hmm. I I ordered the the archival units, uh, the boxes, and the boxes came in. And I said, well, this is the journal, but it's already edited. (laughs) It's already been published. It's not only late, but I said, well, let's have a look at it. And It's only (laughs) only later at home when I was back in Switzerland that I, I, I realized that, this was a completely different uh, narrative for, from from the one who had been which had been published uh, in 1885. Uh, and, and so there it, be- it became very excited and, and started working on this uh, transcribing the manuscript and trying to study it but I, I did so completely in silence <laughs> without without uh, giving uh, the news to the broader academic uh, community and, and then uh, it's where a crake comes in
1: <laughs> so so about 6 months after Roberto left berlin i showed up in berlin and you know, we did not know about each other or know anything about each other of course and I was also interested in the Brandenburg African Company, making that my, my next book project. I had just published a book on the history of darkness and the nighttime in early modern Europe. And I was interested in something that connected Germany with the Atlantic world. So I was interested in this Brandenburg African Company. So I ordered a lot of documents there. And when you order documents in a German archive, you, you get with it a sheet that lists who has checked the document out and looked at it before you. and this can be This can be very interesting or encouraging if you get a document or a or or an archival box or a folder and you see that it was last consulted in 1923, you can think like, well, whatever's in here, I'm the first person to look at it since 1923. Other times, though, you can see that like somebody looked at it six months ago and you're like, well, I wonder who that person is. I better look them up. So I went back to my notes when this was all sorted out and I had in the margins question mark. I'm like ordered by somebody named Haug or or Raug or something like that. I couldn't quite read the handwriting of Roberto Zaug in there. So I came up with like a Haug, Baug, who is this guy? But I didn't look at the Oettinger diary at that time. I didn't know it existed. And when I was waiting for my documents to be delivered to the reading room, I looked at other stuff, but not the stuff Roberto looked at while he was looking at his documents to be delivered. So I did all this research on the Brandenburg African Company, and I kept seeing references to this journal and references to the fact that the German version of it that we have from 1886, must be in some way edited or, or, or uh, adulterated in some way. So just as with Roberto, the real, the real action happens when you get back from the archive, I Mm think So Mm -hmm. using the, using the power of Google, I started looking for Oettinger in the archive. And I discovered that this German archive had created a list of their holdings in this family Oettinger archive. And holding item number four or five in this archive was the Journal of Oettinger. So I'm like, well, I need to get a look at that. So I ordered, I I emailed the archive. I said, hey, you may remember me. I was there a few months ago. Um, Can you look at this thing and tell me what this is? And I, I will not soon forget I was in Bethesda, Maryland, in the car with my wife, driving around to take care of my mother-in-law, and I got the email on my phone, and the archivist said, we're looking at the journal that you asked about, and we can tell you right off the bat, it's nothing like the printed journal that you referenced. (laughs) And I said, hello, this is something real. So I immediately said, can you order that? And in the meantime, they had switched from processing these requests on microfilm, which is how Roberto got his copy, to scanning it digitally which is one of the reasons why I didn't know Roberto existed because they didn't say, hey, we just microfilmed this for somebody else, have a copy of the microfilm. Instead, (laughs) they said, oh, new process, we'll scan this in. So I got the scans and I started working at it and I discovered the same thing that Roberto's discovered, which is this is a wild document, completely different from the fake publication of it. And it seemed to say not so much about the Brannenberg African Company, but just about a German in the Atlantic slave trade and in Germany and in the Netherlands and so on and so forth. Then a conference came along in Liverpool at the uh, International Slave Ooh. Trade Museum in Liverpool, Ooh. and I heard about it, and I said, i got to get in on that action. So I just submitted a, a proposal to them, and it was something like introducing the Journal of Johann Peter Oettinger, 1666 to 1746, a barber surgeon and his journeys to Africa and the Caribbean, or, or something like this. And they said, oh, sounds good. Germans in the slave trade, that was kind of part of the theme of the conference. We'll take so, I'm like, "Well, that's great. I'll figure out what's going on in this journal, and I'll just give them my preliminary results." Then I got a very interesting email,
2: <laughs> yeah, uh, because in the so i I saw uh, on the internet I saw this uh, this conference, and then I said, "Oh my God, my postdoc project, my <laughs> <laughs> my opportunity to to get tenure at the university is gone because uh, the topic of my research uh, is is being appropriated by by somebody else. So I was really, really shocked, and uh, and I asked my my supervisor uh, to to get in contact with um, with, with Craig, uh, which he did, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> trying to make some moral I don't know pressure to uh, trying to convince Craig to to give me a chance and this I think it was really a, a bizarre moment for for both of us uh, because we were we were an early stage of, of our research and you yeah. learned that on the other side of the planet there is a, a, a person yeah. who is working on the same thing and but I, I must confess that what what could have become really a yes an unpleasant situation of of um, of of competition then transformed into a very fruitful cooperation thanks to craig who, uh, who reacted in, in a marvelous way because he said well i'm giving this paper uh, at the conference why don't you come over to liverpool and uh, and contribute your part to to this paper so uh, I, I booked um, a flight to 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 England, and uh, like the, the conference was ten days later, I think. Yeah. <laughs> and and I, I arrived at this hotel in uh, in Liverpool, and uh, we we met in the in the in the hall of the of this small
1: met, hotel. Met in the lobby, and we're like, ah, wants yeah, exactly. to be Roberto. And, you know, of course, my first thought was, this guy's awfully tall. That was really my first. Difference. Roberto is, from my perspective, awfully tall. On the other hand, you might say Kozlowski is, is really uh, not that tall. But at any rate, I sized him up. I'm like, this guy is, is Italian and I'm Italian-American. He's awfully tall and he knows at least as much about this journal as I do. And that was really my secret reason for inviting him to co-present with me because um, I got the email from Roberto's supervisor, Herr Professor Dr. Kaspar von Graetz. And he basically said, I don't know if Roberto saw the email that he wrote, but he basically said, my my postdoc is banking his career on this thing and he found it before you did, which is true. And so we think that you should just forget that you ever saw this journal and cease all work on it immediately. (laughs) And I'm like, what the heck? I mean, okay, I can see this guy may have found it before me, but he hasn't really published anything on it, you know, and then, and then, you know, there's not really a web presence and there was, but you know, not much. And I'm like, Hey, I didn't know about this. I I applied to present at this conference. And then I went back and forth and I got terrible advice from friends and colleagues here (laughs) (laughs) who (laughs) are like, cut the Swiss guy dead, cut him off, (laughs) start publishing immediately, seize control of the journal (laughs) that you have there and just establish priority. You know, it's every man for himself. Um, But then Roberto and I actually started emailing directly without the, uh, mediation of Herr Professor Dr. Caspar von Greiertz, who was a good guy and was looking out for the interests of his postdoc. And I discovered like Roberto has started to prepare these maps of where this guy traveled and stuff like this. And I was just at the rudimentary rudimentary stages of kind of figuring out where did he go and when, you know, this document is not self-explanatory and trying to get some of the African context of it. So finally I thought, you know, If Roberto joins me at this thing, we will actually have a much better presentation because we will take the stuff I've figured out and we'll combine it with the stuff Roberto figured out. And then I thought, look, I may end up not working on this. And Roberto needs to meet these people who are doing this conference on German involvement in the Atlantic slave trade in Liverpool. Uh, But you can't, of course, you can't invite somebody else to a conference that you're not running. So that involved a little delicacy to <laughs> convince the, but I did say, I don't know if I wrote the Liverpool organizers and I'm like, can you invite this guy to your conference? I said, I don't think you're going to have to pay for his travel. He's from Switzerland, very wealthy. <laughs> I'm sure they can cover this themselves because you, you can't write to somebody at a conference, people you've never met, and say, pay to fly this guy from Switzerland to Liverpool on 10 days' notice to co present with me because I didn't realize he also knew mm-hmm. about this journal that i felt like I was the first discoverer of. But they were lovely, the organizers there. Yeah, Eva Rosenhoff, Philip Brahm. And they're like, oh yeah, we've got budget for that. Somebody else canceled out. You know how it is. These things are not as rigid as one fears they are. So then Roberto showed up. We met in the lobby, we combined our PowerPoint slides into one presentation. The next day we gave our presentation and people immediately said, this is very exciting. How many years have you guys been working together <laughs> on this project and we said, we met in the hotel lobby yesterday <laughs> under what could have been tense circumstances, but were not. So they said, "Why, well, it seem like you've been at it together for years already. This is great. So we quickly worked out a very simple plan where we would work together on the English translation because the West Africanists are not gonna read this and the, they don't have time to learn German. They have better things to do. They're not gonna read this in the German original. Mm-hmm. So we decided that we would work together on the English translation of it. And then Roberto would produce the official German edition with a lot more scholarly apparatus and context, which allowed us to keep the American, a German rubber surgeon in the Atlantic slave trade, a little shorter and easier to manage for, for researchers and students. And that kind of takes us up to where we are now.
0: That's a marvelous story. I mean, you're right. It could have been pistols at 10 paces and I Of yeah, course yeah. we've all we all know people that that's happened to. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Now that wasn't good. I just realized I'm like I need Roberto's help on this thing and uh and he can get to Liverpool one way or another and I thought also I want to meet this guy, you know, and see, you know, see what he's made of, you know. So uh <laughs> So that all worked out great. That yeah. all worked out great. So let that be a lesson that it's really much easier and much better to collaborate and you have everything to gain and very little to lose by collaborating. Yeah, absolutely.
2: I, I thought also for me it was like in, in, in it was a big lesson because confronting each other exchanging constantly over years over over this mm-hmm. over this uh, historical source has opened up so many new perspectives that probably if every one of us would would have been working alone oh yeah on this we would not we just would not have seen things I mean we come also not just because we are of course because we are two different persons but also because we have different academic uh, backgrounds. I have done my PhD in in Italy on on Mediterranean history, so I tended to be like sensitive to other aspects than than uh, than Craig uh, from from the US, where slavery uh, has been uh, an important topic in in scholarship for for decades now. And also from the social point of view, it's a it's a question of of debate much more than it uh,
1: it was until
2: very recently in, in europe
1: i would keep collaborating in all the stuff i do roberto and i are going to continue to collaborate and we've also started other collaborations it's just a great way to keep things moving and get a better perspective
0: well i think it's a great point and you know a lot of folks who may not be involved in the academic world or know much about it may not realize that uh, and a lot of times like collaboration has been discouraged at least for a long time it has oh, yeah. been right oh but, yeah you know, You have to stake out your claim. You have to, especially if you're on the tenure track, you you have to kill everybody who threatens you to get tenure. That's an exaggeration, but essentially, (laughs) essentially, it sounds like what the professor was saying. This is, you got to bring the shank and, and, take yeah. care of this sort of yeah. and
1: I got the same advice on my side. And I'm already, I was already a, you know, a tenured full professor at that time. And people still said, you know, crush your rival, seize the <laughs> document. It's like, that's just not right now. And, you know, look, we're all trained to do our dissertations solo, right? So that is really where, you know, you must produce a dissertation by yourself. That's the, that's the hazing, the initiation ritual. But I really think from that point on, you're better off collaborating and the the transnational or transcultural collaborations are great because Roberto knows immense amounts of things that I don't think anybody in the U.S. system learns no matter what they're doing a PhD in Um, and you know I was getting hip to Atlantic history and I could bring that into this topic so it was a good experience and it's really been a relief to both of us and and a pleasure.
0: All right. So after sizing each other up and, and putting on together a fabulous presentation that, that convinced people that you had been working together for decades at that point, mm-hmm. what challenges did you face in actually editing this manuscript? What, did you, what choices did you have to make and how you put it together? And, and along those lines, as we were talking earlier about the different versions of the journal, how were you confident that, that the 1779 version was, in fact, faithful uh-huh. to the now lost original?
1: We spent a lot of time, we spent a lot of time thinking about that, and this is probably a good time to mention that our our collaboration was materially supported by the Swiss National Sciences Foundation, and also very generously by the National Endowment for the Humanities. They have a great program called Scholarly Editions and Translations, which I would encourage scholars to apply for. You have to have at least one partner. And you can get funds for teaching, release, travel, and research. So that allowed us to get together a couple of times Mm face-to-face. And I think that was key. The times that we worked together in Paris and then in Urbana and then, well, at a conference in Senegal, in Dakar, and then in Basel. I think that was our last. And then you came back to Urbana. Yeah, there was a lot of traveling back and forth over the the, the, the and teens, shall we say. So what were the challenges? Well, you know, we had to really dig into the 1779 manuscript and figure out how how accurate it was in relation to the original and how accurate the original was. So. Roberto pointed out that there are a couple of points in this thing where the 1779 manuscript has direct dialogue, as Oettinger seems to have written it in his first copy when he was at sea. And I didn't even understand some of these German phrases, but I think Roberto deciphered them. Uh, yeah. You remember when they get the pig, right?
2: Yeah, exactly. So you have, you have phrases which really sense that they were noted down in the moment. For example, uh, in the border area between, on the off the coast, in the border area between uh, Ghana and Togo, um, they they slaughter a pig, and he notes down. Johan Peter Oettinger notes down, "Ha ha, butcher soup." This is something which you write down in the moment. You would not yeah. years after write such a sentence. And if you are the grandson of of a person who has written a journal, you would not invent such a detail. Other details which which uh, point to the fact that the, the copy by the grandson is very accurate um, are related to, to dates, to uh, measures. For example, when he notes down the the death of anchoring places. These are things that you cannot remember uh, in, in such a detail over a year. So these are clearly um, the results of notes which were taken down in the moment during the voyage. Also the prose, the prose of Johann Peter Oettinger, especially in this German original version, is very terrace it's not it's not particularly attractive it's often elliptic now if you would want to rewrite the narrative the first thing you would do you, you would you would kind of restylish the the prose to make Yeah it make
1: it a little thing. flowerier. and that's what the great great grandson did in the 1880s he had descriptions of beautiful sunsets and fish leaping out of the water alongside the ship None of it's in the original at all. The original is, is pretty terse and functional. As I said, in some ways, it's like a transcript. It's like, this is who I worked with. This is what I saw. This is what I did. Um, and that's what we get. Now, we were able to verify numerous, very specific details and events from the journal in other sources. Um, Oettinger, as a literate person on this ship, the Friedrich Wilhelm, on the, on the 1690s to 1693 voyage he looks like he was involved with the keeping of the ship's log or he was was there when it was being written down because he records some pretty specific latitude and longitude measurements which are pretty close to where he thinks the ship was when he records that as they're sailing south in the Atlantic he records some events when they get to St. Thomas uh 1693, uh, a fire there that destroys the barracoons of the Brandenburg African Company on Saint Thomas, and those are all recorded in the uh, documents from the, colon- the Danish colonial governor of Saint Thomas, who happened at that time to be writing in German. There really aren't a lot of Danes in Danish Saint Thomas, but you know <laughs> that's a topic for another time. It's, it's Dutch English. Germans, everybody except Danish people. I think Danish people were generally too smart to go to the to the Caribbean tropics uh, and get a disease and die there. So it's not a lot of Danes there. But at any rate, we were able to verify so many factual points. So we know that the original text and the fair copy were factually accurate. And then when we looked at the 1779 version. We could see that it sounds like a late 17th century text. And it doesn't really seem to have added or removed too many details. And then there's the stuff about the mermaid.
2: Oh, yes. What we have done when we have edited the, um, the journal, we have tried because this narrative has been the object of uh, manipulations, we have tried to really take the narrative, the original narrative by Johann Peter Oettinger, and to, to, to edit it and to translate it. And we have left out um, some additional material, which has been added by Georg Anton Oettinger.
1: The grandson.
2: Uh, the grandson. Mm-hmm. And and also by, by other uh, great-grandsons who have... Uh, pasted some pieces of texts into the, into the manuscript. So I've really tried to, to restore the original narrative. Now, there is a, a kind of an introduction in the, in the, made by the grandson who tells how he uh, copied the, um, the journal of his grandfather. And he said, well, our grandfather did not write everything in his journal. There are some things which he used to to tell at home. Uh, at, in,
1: in... Yeah, it's like grandpa used to tell these great stories about exactly. his time at sea, which must have been super amazing when you're stuck in the middle of landlocked central Germany to have this grandfather who went to sea and did all these amazing things. So the grandsons used to tell us these stories. Sorry, go on. Yeah, yeah. And one of these stories involves a mermaid. <laughs>
2: <laughs> because they say, well, they one one day uh, the, my grandfather told us they fished a mermaid and they brought her on deck, and this mermaid was very ugly and very angry <laughs>
1: and terrifying,
2: with like claws and, yes, and, and everything and all the mariners were were frightened, and so to to appease her to calm her, they not only threw her back into the sea but they even gave her a uh, ham a big piece of ham, they <laughs> yeah. threw it with the mermaid into the sea to calm her down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This, yeah. Must, this must have been, uh, I don't know how you say in English, the, the these animals.
1: Uh, oh, it's an, it's an imaginary uh, creature. Oh, you might or, have been uh, like a manatee, manatee or a yeah. sea yeah. cow or something yeah, like that. Something yeah, something like this.
2: It, 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 yeah. it could be related to, to <laughs> something which has really happened. So, or it could be just a, a good yeah. grandpa story.
1: So the grandson, what, you know, what convinced us of the grandson's desire to be accurate is he says, now that I'm transcribing that now that I'm copying out my grandfather's journal here, I'm kind of disappointed that some of the best stories he used to tell us are not in the journal. And they're not in the journal because they're stories, they're real. Um, and you can tell this because he says, he says, to calm down this mermaid before we th- that could throw her back in the ocean i think he says we had to give her a whole smoked westphalian ham <laughs> now as you <laughs> it's like tasty but as you know from the previous comment meat was very scarce on the voyage like it was on all voyages yeah. i mean they get one pig and they slaughter it immediately and they say oh we had butcher soup you know we had all this meat finally left over so they didn't have like a spare smoked westphalian ham on board like in case of emergency to give to an angry mermaid to calm her down, that was just not a part of shipboard life. And so that was another way of us thinking that that Georg Anton, the grandson, recorded the journal accurately. And he didn't even put in the fun stuff that he as a little boy that he heard his grandfather describing to them. So that gave us a sense. We had a pretty accurate document. A couple examples of that for you.
2: Also, an important question was, did Oettinger himself copy some stuff Mm -hmm. he had read elsewhere into his own narrative? Because as we know from, I mean, from Edward Said onwards, travel writing is often a lot about copying from previous travelogues rather than... Mm -hmm. um,
1: First-hand observation, right. yeah, exactly,
2: real observation, rather than yeah, running mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. eyewitness account. This was also always a question which which went along with with our studies, and we have been able to detect two pieces of this uh, travelogue, which um, are copied or inspired by um previous texts and w- one is about description of of towns in, in mm-hmm. early modern Germany which are uh, often copied from from, um, from travel guides travel or guides, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. modern travel guides another one is a is a description which has been taken you in, in a more or less accurate way from another German um travelogue of a of a pastor who had been serving on on a Danish fortress on the Gold Coast, uh, which which Uetting at some point in his life must have must have read. Except from these parts really um largely uh eyewitness accounts which have been written down in this travelogue.
1: This is a place where Roberto and I would see this slightly differently. So the key thing to know is that if we look at all the published European material we have about the West Africa in the 17th century, almost every text has a huge percentage of description of West Africa from previous texts. Really, it's worse even than you would see in descriptions of America or the Caribbean islands or something like that. There's just a lot of wholesale recycling. The great thing about Oettinger is that he's really a little too simple of a guy to be able to do that. Um, He doesn't have access to a library that's going to come back, take his manuscript, compare it with books that are published in Amsterdam or Zurich or Copenhagen or wherever, and then kind of correct or enhance his account. He's He's not able to do that. There's one place where there's a little bit of overlap. Roberto thinks that it's from a published text that he saw from a danish minister who lived on the gold coast for decades and came back and published something i think it's more likely that that was just some colorful sort of oral history of the way africans worship strange gods that Oettinger may have just picked up and heard in his travels so i don't think it's a it's an intertextual borrowing Mm -hmm. i think it's a little bit of this mariner's oral culture that wound up in there but uh in any case, it's a very, very small amount of his text. And so the rest of it makes it really one of the most original descriptions of West Africa in the in the 1690s that we have available right now. And it doesn't really matter, I guess, if it was from a text or not. I just think it was a little bit of conversation he picked up that he couldn't resist tucking in there.
0: It's a great opportunity then for somebody else to take the journal that you produced and dive in and see if you can figure out sort of those intertextual relationships and maybe where else he might have been borrowing. Right, exactly. Or who else he was talking with or what he might have
1: heard. But he wasn't writing this for publication. He was just writing this to document all the places he had been, all the work he had done as a barber surgeon, all the people he had healed and the diseases that he had cured or people he had treated, and then it went into the private possession of his family, and that is what makes it kind of different from other
0: publications that came out of these journeys. Do we have anything else from Utinger that survives? Is there anything else that is in his hand that you've come across in this family archive or elsewhere?
1: No, I mean... We know that he lived until 1746, so that's a, that's a good long life. But he settled into, you know, the obscurity of being a village barber surgeon. Um, you know, he says that he bu- he's starting to build up a good practice and he's, you know, he's making good money, but we don't have anything else that documents anything else that he did. But that doesn't really surprise us. He didn't really have any need to write down that much. Um, I mean,
2: when, when he went back to his hometown, his small hometown, you have in the town archives, you have some notes uh, on his later life, but they only say that he became... Uh, a member of the council of his town. There are questions about his... Uh,
1: his will and, and the inheritance. Will, and yeah.
2: that's that's pretty much everything. What we have inside the, the family archive in Berlin are autobiographical writings from his uh, descendants. For example, this grandson, when he was old in Leipzig, uh, during he wrote a, a kind of a personal chronicle Uh, about the time when Leipzig was occupied by the French troops during the Napoleonic Wars, and also about how the the Napoleonic period was remembered after the Restoration. Uh, You have this, you have another uh, descendant of of Johann Peter Oettinger who has left uh, a travel account of uh, German travel he did in the 80-20s, mm-hmm. and this great-grandson, the one who faked, the, who made this fake edition uh, slash uh, historical novel, uh, he himself wrote uh, an autobiography, uh, which is also a manuscript autobiography about uh, his life in late 19th century and early 20th century Germany, which is also in, in this archive.
1: And might be an interesting publication for somebody someday for German imperial history. We have laughed many times because the end of the journal, the last thing we have in Ettinger's handwriting, if you will, is an extremely kind of sexist rendition of the fact that he says, I came back. I rambled around, I hadn't visited many patients back in his little town village, but he could get no peace from his family until I began my married life, which I did, marrying Anna Maria Boom, And that's the last word of the journal right there. <laughs> so, so the interesting noteworthy journeyman part of his life ends with his marriage just full stop. There's nothing about his children or, yeah, or anything like that. That's just where it stops. We have plenty of other documents about Johann Peter Oettinger, but we don't have any more documents from him.
0: Yeah, it is kind of a striking hard stop there where he just, he's like, oh, I did a few things and got married and that was the ball game.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it's a terrible way to look at life in the 17th century or now. Uh,
2: <laughs> well, uh... <laughs> well, from an anthropological point of view, one could argue that life was conceived as being uh, segmented mm-hmm. in clearly divided stages in yeah. in, the, in the early modern culture. So there was the stage of, of childhood when you were living under the same roof uh, of your father, chief uh, of the house. Under his
1: authority, yeah.
2: Exactly. And then, mm. the, actually, the, the, the journal begins when he leaves his father's mm-hmm. home and he goes to another town to become an apprentice. So then, childhood ends and youth begins. He is not yet a father and a husband himself. He's not right. a master himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has not his own household, but he is not any longer in the household of his father. So this is his youth. And his his youth has a really, it begins the day he leaves his father's house and his youth ends the day he becomes himself uh, a
1: familias, uh, mm-hmm. Right, a even before he has mother. children, but just the, from yeah. the moment he's married, he has authority yeah. over his wife and his apprentices yeah. to come and that's the end of it. You know, uh, you asked us, Jim, uh, earlier about the challenges of of editing the manuscript, and I just wanted to go back to what we said, which is that if you're going to study the history of somebody who traveled on three continents, don't take that on lightly, because as I say, this is by no means the longest study that either of us have produced, but the ma- the, the mastery of detail and in the investigation and the places we had to contact, we were in touch with Copenhagen for records from Danish St. Thomas. Roberto has gone to Ghana to see the German fort that's still there, that Oettinger visited. I spent some time in the archives in St. Thomas looking for records in the Caribbean, so it was kind of a division of labor. We never really discussed this, but Roberto kind of took the old world and went to archives, you know, in Kunselsao, in where 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 Tinger was from, and then also down into Africa uh, to just get a feel for where he was. And then I tackled the Caribbean side of things, which was not a hardship, I'll admit, to go to St. Thomas and, and hunt around there uh, and do some research there and just kind of get a feel for what that area looked like uh, and what what uh, Charlotte Amalia looked like in Oettinger's time and in the present day. Um, so those were really the challenges. You know, to, we, we both had to grow as historians a lot to do a truly Atlantic
0: history and we'll,
1: we'll let the readers judge how effectively we, we did that.
0: The journal is out and you've published it and now it's going to be in the hands of readers. What do you hope that readers take away from the journal at the end of the day?
1: Well, you know, it kind of comes back to your first comments. We want to surprise people. We want to show them that the past is full of surprises. Oh, I didn't know there were Germans involved in the Atlantic slave trade. Oh, I didn't know there was a chartered German company involved in the Atlantic slave trade. I didn't know that chartered German company was run basically by Dutch people. Oh, I didn't know that the Archbishop of Cologne invested in that slave trading company. Uh, I didn't know that uh, national categories are not a very good way to look at the transatlantic slave trade. Um, oh, I didn't know where all that linen that the Germans were making, which is a garment that's better for tropical climates, where that was all going. We hope to surprise people. We hope to show, particularly because Oettinger is the same age as a lot of students who might be assigned this book one day, we wanted them to see what's it like to be far from home, in strange places, in morally challenging circumstances, to whatever extent you see that. How does somebody like Oettinger react to that? So I think we want to surprise people. We want to mix it up. There's a lot of great things to come in the field of German Atlantic history. And we want this book to kind of signal that. Roberto?
2: Well, I could add two aspects. The first one from a very European uh, perspective, hinterland perspective, because I'm I'm living in, in Basel, hundreds of um, kilometers, hundreds of miles uh, away from, from the Atlantic Ocean um, in a city which was itself also involved in the Atlantic slave trade in the 18th century. So I think the contribution this book can make is... To really show that the economic forces of the slave trade, of the slave-based uh, plantations in in the American colonies, they were so strong that they they really penetrated into far distant hinterlands of the European subcontinent, and and um, and changed also lives of people who got involved in slave trade. Um, On this behalf, I would also say that this book can make a contribution with regard to the focus that slave trade studies uh, can adopt. There is a lot of, of debate about the big capitalists, the big merchants who invested uh, their fortunes into slaving ventures or into plantations, and who made great fortunes often out of this of this business. Or, of course, there is uh, an important focus on the slaves themselves. Mm-hmm. Now, this this um, this book it shows that also humble people from from Europe uh, were involved in this slave trading business, and without them. It would not have been possible. So this focusing on subaltern actors in the Atlantic slave trade is, in my eyes, an, an important and partially new aspect of, of slave trade studies.
1: Yeah, they're really, the, they're, the, they're the little people who made all this possible. It's, it's partly like the banality of evil. It's also a view of the slave trade that is, it's not from below, from the enslaved people and it's not from above, from the chartered companies and the investors and the links of institutions in in Britain or the United States in the slave trade and the way these colleges, insurance companies, et cetera, et cetera, had invested in the slave trade. It's really these subaltern perpetrators. They're, They're morally complicit in the action of the slave trade, but for somebody like Oettinger, I mean, he's no craven lover of authority. He never even bothers to mention the names of the various sovereigns he's under or who's in charge of any of these places. He's skeptical that the wealthy in any country are always the biggest thieves. He says, well, you know, in, in Africa, the wealthy, uh, the, 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 the leaders here try to steal as much as they can. He says, but, you know, it's exactly the same way at home. He's not invested. You're not going to find that in an account from a slave ship captain, which we have. They are locked in at a little higher level of the authority structure. They have to have a little bit more moral pretense uh, about what they're doing. But Oettinger just lays it out the way he sees it. He makes himself complicit in ways he barely understands. He is definitely solidly in the middle of this mess.
0: Well, I want to thank you both. This has been a terrific series of conversations and a really enjoyable read in the journal. And I'm excited to see how people use it and teach it and, and think about it. Thank you for taking the time to come to us from uh, Urbana and there, out out there in the the Middle West of the United mm-hmm. States and uh, mm-hmm. over in Switzerland and Europe. And thank you very much for taking the time. It's been a real treat for me.
1: Jim, you've got stamina you. and endurance. It's been a long. It's been over two hours here. You've just been <laughs> you've just been powering through this. Um, so thank you. That's really where the where the thanks come from.
0: Thanks for joining us today on Conversations, a production of the Center for Digital History at the Washington Library. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Busky, with editorial assistance from Jeanette Patrick and support from Mount Vernon's Media Department. Be sure to subscribe to Conversations on Apple, Google, Stitcher, or wherever you enjoy your favorite programs. Have a question for the podcast team? Send it to us at conversationspodcast at mountvernon.org, and we might feature it on the show. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can do so by going to mountvernon.org slash podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.